saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Welcome to the Wolf Den, everybody. This is Dan David. I'm here with the pack. Joining us today is Carl, our sound engineer. God help us all. Carl is very excited about this interview. Uh, for the first time, I think he's more excited than I am to interview somebody because we are interviewing the OGs of the OGs for short selling, Kurt Feshback. How are you, Kurt? I'm good. Thanks, Dan. What a nice way to, what a nice introduction. <laughs> well, I, that is, I, it couldn't be a truer introduction. I mean, Kurt Feshback and his brothers started what we refer to as short activism in 1982. <laughs> that, that is almost 40 years ago. And he has a lot to talk about dating 40 years all of us that are waxing poetic today over the last five, ten, two years can thank in part the Feshback brothers and a few others like them. But since Kurt's here today, thank you, Kurt. Well, you're welcome. And I, I don't want to leave out um, our other partner, uh, Dan, Tom Barton, was very much uh, at Feshback, you know, part of Feshback brothers from the beginning. And he, he, you know, was a brilliant guy or is a brilliant guy still out there. And um, so it was really the four of us plus all of our, we had an incredible team of analysts and whatever. I mean, we just had the, we probably had the greatest team ever, honestly. Yeah, you guys, I, I've heard from, from other uh, shorts who have been in the game much longer than myself that you guys had a dream team. You were absolutely fantastic. And for anybody listening I'm just going to give you some of the greatest hits you might have heard of. ZZ Best, that was the Feshback Brothers. Prison Sentences, because there was no real business. Memory Metal, Prison Sentences, because there were no real contracts. Big O Tires, Prison Sentences for Stock Manipulation on the part of the company they covered. Sunrise SNL, Prison Sentences, Accounting Fraud. <laughs> Y&A Group, CEO Vanished, Chapter 11. <laughs> We're not going to get into that. CGHI, Bogus Inventory Stock Manipulation, Chapter 11. Veritech, No Age Cure, Turns Out There Isn't One, Consent Decree. Bank of New England, Heard of That One? Fraudulent Accounting, FDIC, Seizure. There are a few in on that one, I'll give that. Flexible Computer, Scam Product, Consent Decree, York Research, Bogus Revenue, SEC Investigation, Canon Group, Bogus Accounting, Consent Decree, and Cronar, Bogus Accounting, Chapter 11. That's just a few of them. Kurt and his brothers. I, I have a memo here dated 1991, and, and, and it, it's, it, it's in typewriter format. 
The Feshback brothers are committed to promoting <laughs> honesty in the stock market by detecting and eliminating fraud. We routinely investigate situations where we find public being deceived by unethical financial reporting. Our research is thorough and professional. We have the facts and we make the facts available to the proper authorities. It is unlikely that there's anyone in the last decade, that would be from 1982 to 1991, I assume, that's detected more securities fraud than the Feshback brothers. This is an achievement has greatly benefited the general investing public. We find in general that the only individuals who are upset by our actions are those who tolerate and sympathize with unethical corporate activity. That was for you, you Twitter trolls and tumors. <laughs> we intend to expand our activities as we believe the public expects and deserves honesty in the market. A decade of success has proven to us and our investors that honesty pays and pays well. Wow. Boom. All right, Kurt. <laughs> so let's, <laughs> let's get started from the beginning. You have an illustrious educational background. You dropped out of high school and you, you went into the diamond merchant business or diamond broker business. And from there, you became one of the most infamous short side researchers in history. Tell us about it. Sure. So I, um, I stopped the diamond business in about 1981, 82, and was uh, uh, my dad uh, worked with. Uh, with a bunch of oil companies out of Midland, Texas. It was, you know, pretty hot time right after all the oil embargoes and, and a bunch of these companies were, were pretty good. Um, I found a few that weren't so good, um, but didn't really realize it because I'd never knew how to read a balance sheet or an income statement. I ended up meeting a guy, my dad introduced me to a guy named Rusty Rose, who was probably the most brilliant. Was he a big time wrestler? Rusty Rose? No, <laughs> Rusty Rose. He went to Stanford. Uh, he Stanford uh, Business School. He was a Harvard graduate. He was he was absolutely a brilliant guy and very nice. And he really became a mentor to me. So thinking about you know, I was twenty eight, twenty nine. He was probably ten years older, but uh, he was really the one that got me started down this road. Uh, I brought in, was talking about a couple of companies, and he was kind of making fun of me, honestly, uh, you know, because I was trying to promote these stocks, not really knowing what I was doing, you know, didn't have any education, and uh, the companies were paying. Kurt, on, uh, at that point, you were on the yep. side of, because I think your father was in PR, right, public relations, and you were on the side he of He did deals in PR. Yeah. And you were on the side of promoting these companies. And you went into Rusty Rhodes from WWF fame, Ro I'm sure. Rose. Rose. R-O-S-T. Yep. Even better. And yep. you were pitching this stuff on the long side, and he was basically laughing at you. Completely laughing at me. Okay. Making fun of me. Okay. How did you take but that? He, he was also... Well, <laughs> I was embarrassed, right? Because... Um, I was just embarrassed because I didn't really know what I was talking about. Uh -huh. And, uh, and then he, he kind of sat me down. That never embarrasses Carl, but go ahead. I'm sorry. He <laughs> shot you down. Yeah. <laughs> 
so he sits me down, and I'm talking about a company out of middle in Texas called Ike Lovelady, and they've got oil wells and some drilling and some <laughs> acreage and this and that. And he sits me down, he pulls up the balance sheet, and he says, he says, look, Kurt, he says, you know, this thing's got, you know, a hundred million dollar market cap. And it's got a hundred million dollars supposedly of oil reserves and acreage, but it's got a hundred million dollars worth of debt. So he said, "What's it really worth?" Well, that was simple math for a high school dropout. Yeah, and it, you know, it was zero, obviously, and eventually the stock went to zero. I would submit, Kurt. Well, first of all, a hundred million dollar market cap in the in the early 80s is was was not tiny back then by the way like it is now but i would submit that your first clue could have been the name of the company was ike love lady <laughs> <laughs> well it was a man ike love lady was a person okay. and uh, uh i don't care <laughs> <laughs> wow. he was okay. a funny guy he chew, he chewed he chewed cigars Okay. But what would happen would be you would watch him chewing these cigars, Dan, yeah. and he would he literally would swallow them. Yeah. He would he would start with these two dollar cigars or one dollar cigars. I don't know what they cost, but yeah. he would start chewing them and they would start to disappear if you were with him for more than, you know, 30 minutes. Well, the cigar would eventually go away. I would be willing to bet that this guy's oral fixation killed him. <laughs> It could have, for sure. Yeah, I, I'm, I don't, I don't remember or know how he died. Well, the science is in. That was not good for you. Um, okay, so Ike, Ike Love Lady um, was was the first one you were pitching, and and yeah, it sounds like your um, rusty guy was right. He's uh, simple math. I mean, this is this is bad, and that that kind of sent you back thinking about the math. I see here that it's been reported. Around 1981, you stumbled on your first short target, and it was the idea for a business. And that first short target was Universal Energy, an oil and gas company with a market value of 45 million bucks. And you made about five grand on that when it fell from eight bucks to two bucks. So I got a couple questions. How did you fall on to this short target? What was the conversation? like with your dad, who was in PR for companies like this. And then lastly, what'd you do with your five grand? <laughs> well, probably uh, we'll start with the last thing. Probably five grand felt like five million. Yeah. And um, so, you know, it was, it would have been a lot of money for me at the time, for sure. Um, and uh, my dad did not... Uh, my dad didn't didn't actually care about the short selling. He he sort of encouraged it, and he knew Rusty well enough to know that uh, if he was he was helping me, that we were on a path. So we we found this, and I I mean it kind of started with a trip to I was I was managing some money for a friend of mine, and. He was paying me 20% of his profits. Um, we shorted Universal. That was the first one. There was many, you know, many have really forgotten some of these. I'll for, have forgotten some of these names. But, uh, you know, it was, it was traded. 
It was over the it was an over the counter stock, of course, but eventually that stock fell into the pink sheets, and it stayed in the pink sheets, trading between two and four for probably a decade, and we we probably stayed shorted till it eventually went broke. But I I used that five grand and I used that win, and I went to. Uh, I met a guy in Atlanta who wanted to give me some money, and then he introduced me to a few other guys. And I went to Atlanta that year, and who was maybe 81 or 82, and raised like $200,000. Mm-hmm. And called one, called my brother Matt and said, "Matt, we've got a business here. <laughs> we we could make we, struck we oil. could if we can double this." <laughs> <laughs> shorting oil and gas companies, just shorting stocks, yeah, right? Yeah. I was like, we have a business here and we could make, you know, we could probably make 40 or 50,000 a year each if we can just be up a certain amount of money and making 20% of the profits. Well, on 200,000, we would have had to have been up 100%. But, um, but that's kind of how it started. So I got this money. It was all in individual accounts. We used a broker down in San Diego. Um, uh, his name was Rich Feld, wonderful guy. Uh, he, you know, he helped set things up for us, and and it, that's kind of how we got it going. Then, then we just kept meeting people, and and they kept giving us money, and we finally, you know, put together a fund, and uh, we we were collaborating with. You know, it was Matt. It was really Matt and I at the beginning, and then a year or two later, Joe joined us. I want to say around '84, '85, but we were already talking to Tom Barton, uh, and his brother. I think was probably working with him then, um, as well. Matt but, and Joe are both your brothers. Correct. Sorry, okay. Matt and Joe are my brothers. Yeah. Okay. Tom is the non-feshback. Okay. All right. So you you got the two brothers into it. You started it. You were you were even the OG of the brothers. So, and and you talked to them about, hey, we can make fifty grand a year if we just raise a couple hundred grand or so, and off the twenty percent, you grew this thing, you and your brothers, to a billion dollar fund in the early nineteen nineties, when a billion dollars was a lot of money. <laughs> well. Yeah, we did. We grew it. It was uh, it was remarkable. I mean, it, it, the, the due diligence process and things that the 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 funds used at that point, um, you know, the fund of funds and universities and and the different people that gave us money was not like what it is today. It wasn't you know six month, fifty page. Uh, Checklist. I mean, we would get by, by 1984, 85. We we just were having so much success in in so many different types of names. We were short something called American Solar King, which was just a solar company, but it was you know it was a fraud. I don't remember what what happened to it, but it was not economical. And uh, there was another one that did waste to energy, Jiffy Industries, it was called. But it was, you know, waste to energy. It was, you know, literally human waste to energy, and none of the companies were economic. And uh, Cronar was another solar one that was one on the list that you read, and they that was a solar company. So we went from, you know, kind of all these oil and gas 
things to solar energy and then eventually into SNLs. And but but back to what I was saying was back then, people would get our wire instruction to just wire money and then we'd send them documents afterwards. After you got the money, they they literally want to be in at the end of the month or the end of the quarter. Wow, wow. It was well, it was it was crazy. Wow. Well, that must be what it's like to be, you know, some of these big funds today, like, um, I don't know, something that reminds me of Schmark Invest. Um, but there, and, and talking about your due diligence, because let's get into that for a second um, and, and what you did. And you brought up checklist. I have a document here that is a fetch back analyst hat research director hat or portfolio manager hat. And this is the feshback checklist for anybody wearing those hats. And it's 22 points on this checklist with, you know, some sub points going A to F in some cases that you would have your analysts fill out and hand you before you talk to them about a stock. Correct? Correct. This is this is a fantastic archival instrument that is that is used today, probably not in the same format. Kurt, I would love to be able to post this document with our podcast. Would you allow me to do that? Oh, please, absolutely. I think th I think this is this is fantastic, and everybody should have it, frame it, put it up if you're if you're short or uh, if you've gone up against one of our shorts. So tell me about the process. Once you got this, once you got this in, what was your process like? Because as as Carl was reminding me today, this was before Al Gore invented the internet. <laughs> so <laughs> that being the case, information dissemination was incredibly hard. And most most of the short sellers from your time went through reporters and other means. How did you do it? Well, we 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 would always start with with the SEC, the DOJ, any any you know FDA, FTC. We started there, and then there was always you know we would look yeah, for. You say you, you, know, you started spent a lot there. of time with Kurt. You say you yep. started there. Okay, people listening yep. to this are like, oh yeah, right. Well, they just you know they they got on Google and. They they started looking at the SEC archives and they started looking at, you know, DOJ archives. How did you get this information in 1982, 83, 84? How did we get it? Yeah. You mean you mean like how did we do due diligence back then? Well, how did you get it from the SEC, from from the DOJ? I mean the process. Oh, okay. So all right, well, so there's two flows here, right? There's the there's the getting the the SEC documents. Uh, they, there was a, a firm called Disclosure, but for a number of years, we literally would have somebody sitting at the SEC office all day. We paid him, you know, whatever we were paying back then. He would sit there all day, and we would wait for documents to come in, and oh then he would God. take them and 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 fax them to us. <laughs> We were the, uh, oh if you can God. believe this, we were the, probably the first, I mean, this is, again, you know, data moves fast now, but back then this was pretty innovative. We, we were the only hedge fund 
that we knew of. I mean, obviously somebody else may have had one, but we're the only hedge fund for a long time with a fax machine. Yeah. And and we would get we would get guys to get fax machines so they could send us documents. That thermal paper, right? That would come through and turn black yeah. after a week. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was the first paper. We also had dial phones back then, I think. Did you? Yeah, to dial a phone number. Did you do you guys didn't just like pick up a phone and 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 hit the receiver a couple times on an operator named Peggy picked up <laughs> the party line <laughs> only on only on conference calls you had to call AT&T or Pacific Bell or whoever was around back then to set up a conference call if you wanted to have one Oh my god Wow that is an incredible process I'm still trying I'm still trying to to absorb that People like myself or, or whoever else think they're really doing due diligence. And in your time, you had to pay a guy to sit outside the office of the SEC and, like, look at everybody with puppy dog eyes and say, you got something for me? <laughs> it was kind of like that. But I think, Dan, I think I think you and, and you know, several other people have really proven you know how to do due diligence. and Not back you then. You know, it's uh, – <laughs> Well, back then it was different. I mean, it was it was just different. And, you know, finding sources. I mean, we had a whole wall of just phone books yeah. to try and find, you know, like wow. if we, we were we were uh, uh, we were short some uh, boot company and we were trying to figure out there was supposed to be a deal on it. And but it was the kind of time where. You could do this kind of thing anyway. Called the office, asked for the CEO. Secretary said CEOs at you know this restaurant, and um, called the restaurant to see if he was really there. <laughs> Talked to a waitress. <laughs> True <Okay>. story. <laughs> All right, God, I'm sorry. That's great. <laughs> you know. Try to get the mood of the meeting, right? She doesn't know what they're saying, but they left angry. So we figured the deal was not done, and you could do that. So okay, you call the secretary. The secretary, being like, this is—I mean, this is what they did back then. Oh no, he's he's down at Susie's Cafe, and you call Susie's Cafe and you say, "Hey, Susie, uh, can can you page um, uh, Michael Hunt?" And uh, and she does, and uh, you go from there, and they're all pissed off, right? <laughs> yeah, but but it wasn't even like that. It was a little coffee shop, so you know, Susie knew who 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 Michael Hunt was, and you know, hey, is Michael there? Yeah, he's me. You know, he's having lunch, and how, how, you know, how's he doing? I was trying to reach him, and she said, well, you know, the lunch is about over, and they all look kind of upset. And I said, thanks, Susie, and off we went. So, I love how you're not picking up on my paging Mike Hunt. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have pagers then. No, but <laughs> pagers uh, didn't come till later. Uh, yeah, f- fair enough. Fair enough. I, I mean, just talking about the, the, the work you'd have to do for executive background now, I mean, you know, then to, to now. Yeah, yeah. Noah, tell yeah. us that. Yeah, tell us. How did you do? Because on your checklist is definitely, uh, you know, everything you need to know about an executive and their background, whether it's um, there have been any arrests or they've had any run-ins with the SEC or DOJ. 
how, how did you do that? How long was that process at times? I mean, did it take months for one person? No, I would I would say not not months, but but definitely days, um, sometimes months. But you know, we had contacts, and uh, you know, Tom, Tom, and Matt, and Joe and I, we just we learned how to just dig, 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 and and pull strings and look for whatever we could look for. I mean, it was really one thing after, you know, one thing led to a question, led to another question. And, uh, you know, you learned how to check police records or you learned how to check, you know, local court documents. And, but it was all by hand, right? Like now, if we need to look at court documents, you know, you can go to PACER or you can, you know, if it's not in PACER, it's going to be in the local courts. And, you know, you have, you still have to do that by hand. Like, and what I mean by hand is you can look him up online, but you have to go to, you know, Orange County, Florida to look at whatever's there about some company or, you know, uh, West Palm Beach and there, whatever their, uh, you know, local court would be or Santa Clara County, because things are not always right out in front of you even today. Right. No, so, no, yeah. you know, you can check things that way. you Maybe he gets some story about some beef somebody has, and you check a court to see court. You know, you check a pull. You can get police records and see see what what what's happened. But uh, back then, it was it was. I mean, and that's why I say we had such an incredible team of, you know, my brothers and myself and Tom and all of our analysts. You like, no one ever gave up and said it was a dead end until they were sure. Yeah. Well, that's good advice for today, too. Yeah. I mean, look, you guys, I'm, you know, I'm sure you guys think you run into dead ends and they're just not dead ends. You know, I mean, you've got to you've got to take it down until you're 100 percent positive that there's nothing there. You know, so so I think, you know, in terms of checking people, sometimes it would take weeks or months or sometimes you would run into an industry expert who knew, um you know, and this is before, you know, you had the expert calls, right? There were no uh, expert networks back then. So it was, this is just another story, but we, we were short a company. We ended up short a company called Ultra Systems. And they had wood-fired power plants or a wood-fired power plant. I don't remember how many they really had, but it was in, it was in central California. And uh, I couldn't find out much about it. It was too far to drive and you couldn't go out every day. And I just picked up the phone book for that area and found somebody who lived right behind it. It came, you know, I got to talking to him and told him what I needed and, you know, paid him some money and they'd call me. And what would happen would be with this wood, there would be, it would, it would, you know, it would combust. Like the wood would get hot and, and, and start and start a fire so they would start losing wood, you know, because they had these big piles of wood. As wood does. Yeah. As as wood does. And she called me like every week or so. And then, but, but what eventually did them in was all the truckers figured out where they needed wood and they started charging them double and triple to bring the wood in. So we were talking to truckers, I was talking to the neighbor, you know, and the plant was just not economical. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, but that's what the phone books were for. Where to call, you know, like you know, you you look on Google Maps now next to some business, and you call the you might call the businesses around it to see what's happening. Back then, we had phone books. Yeah. Oh yeah, I've I've heard of phone books. 
I I yeah. actually remember those. I, I I remember like 2007, somebody coming to our office trying to sell us an ad in in the phone book. Yeah, yellow pages. So I I and I, and I think I think the guy quit that job and went to work for Google. I'm sure. Pretty much. Yeah the 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 phone book was a was a big deal, and that's where you got a lot of information that we now take for granted in Google. And yeah, you run it down. So tell me about like. Some of the more famous things, I mean, arguably one of the most famous things, because Barry Minkow is Barry Minkow, and and he's a douche. Though, Barry, if you're listening, I would love to have you on my show. ZZZ Best. By the way, it was the best that he had to star in his own movie. <laughs> that was very, that was, that was awesome. So take me, take us through ZZZ Best, because... In in the movie starring Barry Minkow, about Barry Minkow, he doesn't mention you guys, but you guys brought them down. Yes, well, and and we, we it was it was a uh, it was, you know, ZZZ Best was uh, you know we used to have each of us had different stocks that we worked on, and 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 the analysts of course also did, and but. Um, uh, ZBest was ZZZ Best was was really one of Tom's stocks, and we all worked on it. But he, you know, he found it. I don't really remember how he found it, but basically, what it turned out was he, you know, Barry was out. He was like nineteen or twenty or twenty-one. I mean, he's yeah. pretty young, yeah. and he was telling people about all these contracts and how big they were, and and. And there was a, a flood or a fire, something in MGM in Las Vegas was one. There was something else in Sacramento. And he was talking about how big these contracts were. And, Z, and ZZZ Best, we should tell people, ZZZ Best, for people who don't know, started out doing cleanup. Like, I mean, you know, they would clean offices, but they would also, their bread and butter was when you had a flood or fire or partial fire or something like that, they would go in and get a contract to clean that up, correct? Correct. Okay. Go, go ahead. Tell us. So those contracts, uh, it went, those contracts, they were telling people they were 10, 20, 30 million bucks. But if you called and just check with the hotels or the office buildings, you will find out they were two or three million bucks. And then the other thing they would do is they would bring, you know, and this will sound familiar. Uh, you know, in in some ways, but they they would bring they would bring investment bankers or 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 people they want. You know, when they were doing road shows or stock stock promotions, they would bring people to you know burnt out buildings and places like that. They would have shown up early and hung up you know some of their Z bests, their hats, and different work things in a truck or two, I suppose, and. And and they wouldn't even have the contract. It was similar to, you know, sprinkling. What was that? There was a gold company that we weren't, in fact, involved in back in the, I want to say in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, where the guys were sprinkling gold on the ground <laughs> to get investors to realize it was just so easy to pick up and it was going to be a great gold mining thing. It's literally everywhere. Look. it's Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting that, like, there's progress in the world and um and part of that is how much more information we have for doing due diligence so that things like this shouldn't happen but one thing that never seems to change 
our investment bankers can show up to some staged event and be like, man, can I sell this thing? I'm going to have them lining up for a pipe deal, for a private placement, for whatever. Let's make sure we don't get there before they set up the show. And they did it 30 <laughs> years ago, and they're doing it today. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to go off on a tangent. Right. I just hate bankers. But. No, but that that was the point. They they did it 30, 40 years ago. They're doing it today. Mm-hmm. So sa- same thing. We were short. This was one that wasn't on the list. We were short a company called Uni Oil back then, not to have it confused with Union Oil, but that was sort of what we always thought they were trying to do. And it was run sure. by a guy named Lloyd Richards, and he was making these announcements, and we were we were reading about them. You know, when you went back through like ten of their announcements, they had they had more, they had they had almost as much production as as uh, you know, pick an oil company, Shell, Standard you know, Oil, or yeah. Chevron, or whoever. Like yeah. they literally, there was a company back then you've probably never heard of called Kerr McGee that was producing maybe thirty or forty thousand barrels a day. These guys, based on the what they had announced, were doing like thirty thousand barrels a day. Wow. And, and I mean, it was like incredible. So what we did was we hired a landman uh, to verify all of these wells that these guys supposedly had. And these brokerage firms were writing reports on and they went, it was in, we went, they went to Denver where you, you know, you have to actually file and I assume it's the same and maybe you can get them online, but you actually have to file your ownership of an oil well, whatever the, you know, public d- domain was for oil wells. And so we, we hired a guy who was familiar with it. He went through all of their wells and all of the areas around their wells. And it turned out like literally they owned zero oil and gas. Wow. Zero. How big of a short was that for you? Do you remember? Oh, it was big. We were short a few hundred, you know, a couple hundred thousand shares, a few hundred thousand shares. It was big. We made... You know, we made big money on it. If, you know, back then, millions of bucks, and yeah. uh, you know, for our for our investors and our fund, and it was uh, I think it was around 1985 or 86. I mean, it was like a lot of money. Remarkable. Lloyd Richards eventually went to jail. Like a lot of people, you went up against. Yeah, yeah. We we put a lot of guys in jail. I mean, um, they don't go to jail. We put a lot of guys in jail. Yeah, not not anybody from China. I can assure you of that. Um, no one from China goes to jail, do they? No, they do not. Uh, well, you do in China if you do something against a Chinese citizen, but uh, you, you you don't in China if you do something against an American citizen. That's that's pretty okay. So you your your investors were thrilled. You guys were kind of living the high life. I'd read some articles where you guys were kooky zany, like you had gumball machines and pinball machines in your in your office, and you had like a hundred teddy bears in there, I assume, because of the bear thing, right? Mm-hmm. And you had, you were one of the first, you had swag. You had fraud buster swag, like what were they, uh, the, they were uh, bags or hats or? J- jackets, watches. Jackets we- and watches? Jackets, watches, coffee cups. Um, I wish I, I wish I still had some. And it was all fraud buster stuff. All, all had fraud buster. You don't have any of that stuff left. 
I really, I really don't. It's embarrassing. I've got a coffee cup, I think, at home, but it's, uh, I don't know what happened. A lot of that stuff. I mean, when we, when we, anyway, it just, it was, uh, we had a lot. We, and it was fun and we sent it out and we, people loved having it. I will trade you a North Face Wolfpack Research hoodie and uh, a North Face Wolfpack Research winter jacket for one used mug. <laughs> okay. If I can get a mug, I'll get it for okay, you. Fair enough. There you we'll go. find one. That, yeah. would, that would be awesome. And I'd love to have a picture of that too, because like, yeah, man, that's, that's kind of the first stuff. And I, and I bet your investors just loved getting it, right? Not as much as they love getting the returns, but. They probably loved it. They loved it. We were, we were, people liked us. Um, our investors loved us. And, you know, of course, of course, the guys that ran the frauds, it's a very similar, similar to today, you know, congressional hearings and, you know, short selling and it's terrible. And really, um, so, so yeah. you had congressional hearings back in the eighties about how terrible short sellers were. It's either in the late 80s or early 90s. Yeah, there was like a whole thing about short selling. It was uh, same, same, same BS, same stuff. Um, you know, back then it was uh, there was a guy that had a you know over the counter type newsletter called Robert Flaherty. He he, uh -huh, you know, constantly yeah. promoted frauds and his thing. Do you know that name? Well, it comes up. In relation to the Feshback brothers, this is going to be a shocking revelation to you. He was not a fan. <laughs> he, he alleged you guys of all kinds of dirty tricks and said negative campaigns by short sellers have uh, occasionally damaged startup companies that otherwise might have thrived. I assume he means frauds that he might have gotten paid from. I don't know. That's just an opinion because I think Flaherty's still in business doing some kind of shit today, right? Is he? I don't know. I've, I've lost. Yeah. I lost track of him, honestly. Carl, what, do you, what do you have on your detective meter, Carl? Flaherty International uh, Publishing. He still has something active, yeah. um, but I haven't been able to find uh, the actual publication. So it must be like an insider thing. What, what, what's his first name? Uh, Robert Flaherty. Robert Flaherty. Okay, kiss my ass, Robert. Just so you know. All right, let's move on. So you had your share of people who felt like. Uh, what, what do they say now? You're crying fire in a crowded theater. You know, I mean, I always ask the lawyer who says that, what happens when the theater's on fire and you're saying fire? Is that okay? <laughs> financial terrorist, that, that was a good Oh, one. yeah, financial terrorist. I get called that a lot. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, look, you know, you we, we had, uh, you know, we've got... <laughs> I, I'll have to go through it, Dan, and see if I can find a bunch more names. But you know, there's there's 50 other names, probably 30 other names of of companies that you know either went bankrupt or or yeah. just guys went to jail. I mean, we were short American Continental, which was Keating's bank. Oh, Keating, right? The savings and loan guy who was uh, kind of attached to the uh, late senator. Um, uh, McCain. I mean, you know, in all fairness, yeah. I, I, I did love John McCain. But, you know, early on in his career, he got a little attached to Keating as well as uh, I think Neil Bush. Right. Some of those guys uh, could have been. I don't I actually don't remember. I remember when Keating went to jail when we we were all pretty happy that he, <laughs> he got convicted of fraud. Yeah. Bank fraud and, and, and went to federal prison. So. 
he, it was uh, it was a big group effort. Those banks, and you know, we were we were short that one. Um, you mentioned Sunrise, I think, is on here. Yeah, Sunrise is a funny story. My brother actually was visiting one the the main branch in Florida over I think it was in Boca or somewhere, and the day he was visiting was actually the day they got raided by the FBI <laughs> and the. Uh, no and the kidding. Feds. Did he actually see Neil Bush shit his pants? <laughs> <laughs> he might have. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> daddy, daddy. <laughs> Somebody come help me. Wow. I, I have to say, yeah. I, I found it interesting in, in kind of doing some of the research uh, on, on you, Kurt, because um, Dan has been doing this forever, and, you know, I just run a soundboard. Oh, shut up. Um, that, that there were so many articles where they, they accused you of unorthodox methods or, or doing things that were outside the norm. And when you really read through it, it, it's, it was just simple things like calling the customer and seeing if they actually had a contract or verifying that they own the land grant. And that, that was considered unorthodox. It, it just blows my mind where that's kind of like SOP at this point. Well, you know, it got to be SOP back then even. I mean, I think uh, – um, but you're right. I mean, it was unorthodox, and we were crazy, and we did crazy things, and, you know, we – You guys, like, you dug through trash too, right? Like, you dug through people, like, companies' trash? <laughs> yeah, when it was legal. We, you know, I mean, it wasn't – it's not always particularly legal, but, yeah, we would dig through companies' trash i i did that for somebody uh on a stock not even that long ago i had a pi up in canada and he was digging through some company's trash that was put out on the curb and it was uh it was legal to go through it uh -huh. um he would he would take it out put new trash in so in case somebody came by and why is the trash can empty and and went back and we found wow well that that's thorough yeah yeah, well, so I mean, there's, there's, there's ways to go through trash. Did you did you did you ever take shredded documents to try and put them together? I don't think so. I don't remember that. Okay, that that, that would that's, be pretty rough. That's pretty. That's pretty urban legend. You yeah. see that in the movies, but like, yeah, yeah, I, you see shredded documents, and you're like, yeah, this is probably an easier <laughs> way to do this. Uh, yeah. that's, that's a puzzle you can't really get to. Yeah, I think I think there was something about uh, Z Best, somebody going through Z Best trash and, and getting some stuff on them. But, you know, that guy. I'm sure that I, I don't actually remember, but, um, you know, we I don't remember whether I'm sure, you know, look, we went through people's trash. We went through company trash. Uh, we had PIs. Um, we did a ton of work that way. I mean, especially, you know, there was no Internet, so you had to send somebody to locations right. whenever you could. I mean. Right. And there had to be something written on documents, you know, rather than on online. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you couldn't find, you know, now you can find most everything online. I've never, I've never done the trash thing. I've never... I've never had anybody go through the trash. I, I guess in the 80s and 90s, like, you got to do what you got to do. I can't say that if it was in the 80s and 90s, I wouldn't have done it. I just, like, think today, with so much stuff online, there's just not as much paper or whatever. And then if it's a person's house or whatever, that's just completely off. So once you once you got the information, you then really, you know, had to go through 
I guess, reporters. Like one of the things on your checklist, you know, I read, I found interesting is it says point number, where is this? 15. The short story is worthy of the Wall Street Journal heard on the street column, question mark. Mm-hmm. So that was that that's something you they had to turn into you with their with their little short write-up thesis. So I assume that you you would contact the Wall Street Journal. It's been written that and uh, that you contacted Herb Greenberg at the San Francisco Chronicle and and Herb's been a guest on our show. Herb's a friend, a really great guy. And Herb's quote on this was you know, the SEC queried him about the feshback relationship with columnists such as yourself. And Greenberg and other columnists routinely quote that the fleshbacks, some critics, such as uh, Flannery, say shorts use reports, reporters to help drive down stocks. Greenberg said, any writing about stocks is open to such charges. We get used by people all around who try to use us for good stories. He said, that's shorts, and they're no different from longs. That's absolutely true. Because by the time he publishes it, it's on him to do his diligence, and he did. But you develop these relationships, I guess, with with these people. Yes, we would. I mean, we had a we had a a, a great relationship with Herb, you know, and and uh, he's he's a great guy, like you said, and fun to speak to, and yeah. you know, um, we had Dan Dorfman. We even had um, oh, what was the guy's name? We used to talk to the guy from the Journal. Um, they actually got busted for taking money from people to promote their stocks. Um, I can't think of his name all of a sudden. Rupert Murdoch? <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. It was uh, uh, Herb would remember, but uh, there was a guy at the Journal. Uh, we, you know, I had a relationship with Gary Putka, who used to write Herd on the Street back then, and he wrote with another guy. Um, and I'll think of the name, maybe, I hope. But All right. Well, while you're thinking of the name, let's, let's talk about the process a little bit. Because it wasn't like... Sure. It, it wasn't anything like, hey, I've got you know these five points or this write-up. I'm going to give it to you. You're going to publish it. Tell me what day you're going to publish it. Like, none of that happened. They could not tell you whether they were going to publish or not. And they they basically asked questions. You answered them. Is that is that how... That's how I understand the relationship worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we would never know if they were going to publish or when they they if they were or when they were for sure. We would present, you know, the facts as we saw them. Right. And we would write and and we would send it in a package and we by, you know, by the mid 80s and we were using FedEx, right? So we would FedEx things to, or, you know, we never, we couldn't, you know, we wouldn't stick it in the mail because it took too long, but we would FedEx stuff and, and, and they would have to go and, you know, we would try and provide, you know, resources, sources for them to verify and they would develop their own as well. And, and, and that's how a story would, would get published. And if they didn't find it newsworthy, which is why it's in here the way it is in the, in the checklist, it, you know, they wouldn't publish. So, you know, it wasn't based on rumors or or innuendo or anything. It was based on, you know, we went to the land office in Denver and Uni Oil doesn't own any oil wells. Mm-hmm. They have no oil. Mm-hmm. And yeah. here's the proof. Right. And it's it's up to that reporter to recreate it. Um, not unlike, you know, somebody will call call me and say, hey, I've got 
this company is a complete fraud. And of course, whatever you see from this person just says fraud, fraud, fraud everywhere. And it's all probably innuendo and nothing's proven. But you've got to go in and we, for my, speaking for myself, I don't know what everybody else does, go in and recreate it or it doesn't exist. It does not exist in, in the vacuum that somebody says, I did this research, so take it. Was that the same way for you guys? Right. Yeah. Absolutely, hundred percent. Any reporter would have to 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 go through it and and, uh, well, and look same, at it. It was the same way for you too, right? Like, I mean, anything somebody sent you, you didn't just like pass it on to a reporter. You had to. Did you vet it yourself? I mean, I would think you did, but tell me. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah, we we vetted everything. I mean, we would get calls from brokers with stock ideas and you know, symbols and what they did and where they were from. And, you know, it was, a, it was a much different time again, you know, but, you know, many of the things we did back then, you know, you guys do now, I do now, but yeah, we would get a name and get a story and, and we'd have to bet it a hundred percent. We don't do quite the same thing. I mean, uh, I mean, the background work is all the same, right? And, you know, arguably you're still, right. still one of the best out there, but you don't publish. And maybe I'll take the time now to talk about, like, I, you've got this new business, the Bindle paper, right? And you're right. doing this research for clients, I, I guess for under a billion dollars, it's 37 grand a year. And you plan on publishing or writing about eight to 12 uh, initiations per year that you would, you would provide to paying clients. Yes. Okay. And it, it, it's bigger companies, uh, definitely not what, you know, definitely different than, than what you're, you're doing. Not, not that you don't do big companies. I don't mean it like that, but you know, you do publish. <laughs> I, I don't I do them all. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, so it's a little. It, it, it's we don't do the exact same thing, of course, but it's much different than what we did in the '80s. You know, we back then, you know, we had uh, we had D.H. Blair, you had Stratton Oakmont, you know, mm -hmm. you had Jordan Belfort or whatever his name was. You had a That's bunch it. of guys like that back then. So it's different, right? right? For sure. Now you guys are amazing with what you do with the Chinese companies and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, it's it's just mind-boggling to me how how much you guys dig in and get. I don't know. I think I think you're still doing that. Uh I you know, I know you are on on some on some pretty big levels. You're just not public about it outside your exclusive clientele, which is your business model and that's great. I would say this and I mean, it's it's rhetorical, right? This is just my opinion. You're in a tough business, pal. Um I, you know, I remember when my former businesses we that that's what we wanted to do. We I never wanted to be a short seller. I I just I hated the concept of betting against companies. It seemed like you're betting against the American dream. You're betting for something to fail rather than for something to succeed. I've since embraced that wholeheartedly with a with a big hug. But that model of selling just differentiated great research, the banks don't want it. Right. So if you think they're a client, they're not a client because I, as a bank once told me, you want us to pay you to tell us one of our clients a fraud, meaning we can't collect fees from them anymore. How about you get out of my office? <laughs> the, the funds, you would think that big funds who have big budgets 
would be happy to pay what would you think would be nothing, 37 grand a year to 100 grand a year, whatever. I mean, a fraction of what they probably pay on Bloomberg terminals, which only gives them the same information everybody else has on a Bloomberg terminal. But it's really tough to get these clients to pay. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, yeah, they definitely hate paying. People hate to pay for research. I mean, it's like... That was a big setup on my part for you to be like, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> they, they hate to pay for research. Funds hate to pay for research. I don't really understand why. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, you know, hey, uh, can you have uh, one of your guys in China go check out five locations in five different provinces? And, you know, we're a $10 billion fund, but we will pay you as much as $9,000. What do you think? Pretty much. That's <laughs> kind of how it went. Right. right. Uh, it's, you know. it's, their whole attitude is, we're a big fund, and we have Bloomberg, and we have LexisNexis, and we, and then there's that Google machine, and we'll figure it out without you if you're not going to take our nine grand. And then you provide somebody, or I'll publish for my own research that's completely differentiated, it proves frauds, and they're like, how could we have known? It's true. I mean, that that really is kind of how how that ended up going. I mean, I did some work in China on I think I we we may have talked about this, Dan, and I'll tell you this isn't that long ago, right? On Hanergy. Oh right? yeah. And Oh man, they killed everybody. It, yeah, they killed everybody like the stock went up and up and up. Yeah. But in the end, you know, we you know, I had a guy who, who and I did was doing some work in China then, but uh who was able to get a good view of, of one of their, their factories. Uh-huh. You know, he went around, like, it was actually incredible. So we, we were, you know, we could see the gate where stuff came in and out of and nothing was ever happening. Right. That was one thing that was a pretty big indicator. Then he went, we, prior to that gate, he went and traveled to all the sites they were supposed to have uh, construction going. And most of it was just, you know, raw land overgrown and, and stuff like that. We presented all these pictures and, you know, in the end, I don't know whether the fund made money or not, but but uh, it was an incredible job. I would say not on Hanergy. I mean, I, I, I think we did yeah. talk about Hanergy. I, I didn't do the work on Hanergy at my last company, and I don't sell research. Wolfpack doesn't do that, your model at all. Uh, Geoinvesting right. did, did have a model where we sold research, and people would call me and say, have you looked at Hanergy? And I was like, look, man. You're like the 100th person that's called me, which means that, you know, Feshback and everybody else is looking at Hanergy, and I don't feel like all of us need to be bumping each other in the bushes, so it's going to be somebody else's problem. And this, and, and this, this fund was, like, really short, and the stock ripped. I mean, put them out of business completely. And when Hanergy finally fell apart because they were a fraud, he calls me and tells me he was right. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, but you're broke. <laughs> but I was right. Yeah, but you're broke. Because being right isn't enough. You have to be right when the rest of the market agrees with you. Otherwise, it doesn't really matter financially. 100%. I mean, that's really, in the end, one of the you know big issues of short selling right like you you can be right 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 and you know you can end up in some stock that goes up 
10 times before it goes down, even though the plant's not really operating, they're not really building whatever, or, you know, the manipulation. There are, there are no actual tutors in the classroom, GSX? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that that had to hurt somebody, right? Um, yeah, 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 Kurt, it hurt. All right. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> so, <laughs> you brought it up. <laughs> Whatever. You you brought it up. I listen. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, what am I going to do? Blame myself? In this case, I'm a bag holder. I have every right to blame everybody. That's what bag holders do. <laughs> yeah. No, I totally get it. Look. You know, we, we've we've all had different different stocks that have just you know ruined us. Whether it was ruined us for good or ruined us for you know for some period of time, and it's uh, you know we 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 went through the same thing. I mean, even you know even now, I mean, look, you you know if if you ended up short of solar stock, you know, seven or eight months ago, like they're all up four times. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know whether, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time on the solar business, but I mean, since, 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 since the 80s, but it just, I did spend some time on, on a couple and God, it's just remarkable to me that these, these things are now so valuable. Some of them. Uh, well, you know? I mean, but I mean, Elon Musk is the richest man in the world. So this is not a bizarre concept to me. So, I mean, it, you know. I notionally think Tesla is a fine car, uh, but like, you know, the valuation of things these days is, is incredible, Kurt. I mean, last year, the most successful short sellers, say maybe, maybe other than Carson, were net long the entire year by uh, very net long for the entire year. Uh, otherwise they were down and that's the market we're in. And now, when that turns, it's going to be really, really bad for retail, I believe. Uh, banks will survive. They always survive. And when they don't, we bail them out. Uh, but there are some people who, who are really going to lose a lot of money and figure out that 2008 was not that long ago. Right. It's true. I mean, it really wasn't. And, you know, you can go back and, you know, look, I've been through you know, I've been through the 87 crash, the 89 recession, the, you know, Black Monday, 1987. Yeah, Black, yeah, Black Monday. I mean, so you saw this crash, that crash, the crash last year, you know, the crash in 08 or 07 or pick whatever dates are applicable. You know, there's, there's going to be another one. I mean, whether it's next year or this year, I don't know, but some of the, the valuations are, are rough to understand. Like I don't, I can't get my mind wrapped around it. Yeah. Don't try in, in, mo in a lot of cases. Yeah. Don't, don't try. Um, you just, I won't, you, you just, you just <laughs> got to find that differentiated information that, that, I mean, proves fraud or material misrepresentation because not much else matters these days on the short side of it that's that's just my opinion if you're going to be in the short game now talking about 2008 that was kind of your waterloo wasn't it that was like kind of you were you were very bearish on wells fargo as you should have been <laughs> they earned that and then warren buffett came in and saved them and i guess that that was a killer for you right 
Well, not not in a weird way, uh, Dan. Um, not not really not really like what what what's been written or talked about. You have to realize we we started. I don't remember the exact prices, but let's say we started with Wells Fargo in the '60s or '70s, price wise. And it was a much much you know smaller bank then, and the stock went into the into the teens. Mm-hmm. I actually gave a talk in San Francisco, and people made fun of it because you know whenever a short seller shows up at some you know uh, analyst talk day, that's usually the bottom or the top. And I was there when when the stock actually did bottom, but the stock went down you know thirty forty points. Maybe in, 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 because they had bad real estate, and then they took a big write down, and it did go up, and we covered. So we covered up fifty percent from the year end mark, and I would bet overall, like I don't have the books and I can't prove it, but I don't really even think we lost money in Wells Fargo. Well, why, I think we probably reported, overall. Why is it reported that you did? Because. People like to people. People you know, look. I mean, Robert Flaherty. You know, yeah. Ray Dirks, Short Busters. I mean, all okay. these guys were just rooting for us to fail. And so you and made so if money some on Wells go, Fargo. So you made money on Wells Fargo. So there. How about that? Right. Well, that's yeah. Yeah, that's a scoop for us here. We should put that on your Wikipedia page. <laughs> I think we did make money in Wells Fargo. I may have to call somebody to double check, but uh, I'll call my old partner. But but I'm pretty sure we made money in Wells Fargo. We, made, we you know, it's like look, we were short Citicorp back then. We made money in that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we were, we made money in most all of the all of the banks. We stayed with them too long because the Fed started cutting rates so much. But anyway. No, I, I love that you did mention in there that these banks, including Wells Fargo, were much smaller back then. And back then you mean 2008 and nine, because the whole part of saving them was they were too big to fail and we're going to fix that. Uh, and now they're all bigger by a multiple factor Combined, they're bigger than countries, maybe even ours. Uh, so, what do you think of that? Gosh, I really hadn't thought of it that way. But it really wasn't '08 or '09 that we were talking about, where people point poke, poke, poke fingers at us for losing money in Wells. It was really in '91 where people said we lost money in Wells Fargo, Dan. Oh, I thought um, I, I thought I saw somewhere where they say Warren Buffett came in and and bailed them out, which would have been the '08 crisis. <laughs> Well, I think he owned he owned Wells Fargo back back in the in the nineties. Uh, there, there uh, yeah, uh, that's there, where I there got was confused. a. Uh, oh yeah, exactly. But you know, there was a, this is funny because you hung up on Warren Buffett, but there was a campaign not started by us. I did hang up on him by the Feshbacks or Tom, but it was uh, there were T-shirts around that said. Uh, uh, fuck Warren Buffett. Oh. Short Wells Fargo. Wow. <laughs> wow. That was not us, but wow. but on the other hand, it was uh, it was pretty funny. I would have done the second speaking. part of that, but I'm not sure I would have. You know, I would have banged Warren Buffett. <laughs> uh, uh, but 
Right. Yeah. Well, uh, well, anyway, so no, it wasn't in 08. It was it was much earlier. It was, you know, look, we're talking about things that happened a long time ago. And, uh, you know, I use the same tactic. Yeah, I'm glad you cleared that. I'm glad you cleared that up because, yeah. one, I had my times wrong. And, and, and two, I'm glad to hear you guys made money. So there you go. No, no, we did. I mean, I read a book one day, and this guy, I, we were mentioned in the book, and, you know, stupid Feshback brothers and how stupid they were, and I remember the book, and, you know, look what happened to them in Wells Fargo, and I'm like, you never called us. You never did a fact check. We made money in the stock, <laughs> you know? There's, there's a problem, you know, if a stock goes from 70 to 20 to 30, right? Yeah. And it goes from 70 to 20 in December, it's 20. And then in January or February, it's 30. Well, you know, you're down 50% of the stock for the year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so tell me. That's Kurt, the hedge fund business. Tell me, how, how did it wind up for your fund? I mean, you're, you're looking at a, managing a billion dollars uh, in the early 90s, late 80s. That is a shit ton of money back then. What happened? What happened from there? Well, there were there were a couple things, Dan, and and one. Um, uh, well, the the first thing there was a there was you know the Fed started cutting rates at the end of nine in in ninety. Uh, you know, the banks started making more money. We were short a fair amount of banks and, and they went up. But most most of the stocks that we were short were, were pretty crappy companies, right? Frauds and just stupid businesses and whatever. But many of them went up at the beginning of 91. There was like this massive short squeeze, like not not as massive as, say, what happened with GameStop. You know, stocks weren't going up you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 times, um, or or when Volkswagen, when that short squeeze happened. But, yeah, yeah. you know, many of our stocks went up, I would say, at least two or three times. And we went into 91, we were maybe 70% invested, and the market really took off in January. And we were, we were, what's the right word? You know, we were actually positioned pretty well, except We'd been through it every year, right? Stocks rallied in January, February, March, and then they would calm down a little bit in April and May. And, you know, we would make money two or three months out of the year towards the end of the year, you know, July, August, September, October, you know, you had the October crash and things like that. And But the stocks went up so fast that we we did get squeezed out of, of, a, of a number of just frauds and different names and, and even in, you know, and some of the banks that we were short, we actually had to cover like Wells Fargo because they, you know, were taking these big write-offs. I mean, back then, I think Wells Fargo took a two or $3 billion write-off and the cent, you know, was up that day. And that was pretty much the, the telltale sign. Um, we had another thing and I don't, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit, Dan, but, um, there was also an SEC investigation into us back then. Yeah, you sued the S you sued the SEC. I was going to ask you about that. Right. There was this SEC investigation. It was on insider trading, and I and I and it really put us on our heels. I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. um, we we had done nothing wrong, and we never you know they never brought charges, and we didn't sign any consent decrees, and they eventually just went away. But there was a lot of shoot first, ask question later by the investors. Mm -hmm. And yeah. 
so a lot of our money just left at the same time we were getting squeezed. And it, you know, when I say left, people were withdrawing because, you know, they're, they, they didn't want to be part of, you know, some kind of Ivan Boski right. type of a situation. Right? right. That's that, that mattered a lot more back then. I mean, did you get a Wells notice during this whole thing? I don't, I don't think I read that. No, 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 nothing. In fact, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. you didn't even you didn't even get a Wells notice. <laughs> no, no, we never. They showed up at our office on a Friday afternoon at like five o'clock, and it was a guy named Gladwin Goins and his crew of of SEC guys. There were like eleven or twelve of them, and they yikes, came with subpoenas, yikes. and we had to call our lawyers. And what do we do? And you know, it was just like Friday afternoon at five o'clock. Like he's just <laughs> he's just a press hound right yeah i mean no, no more than that just complete joke like it, it just luckily i happened to be there i mean you got to remember we were in california market closed at one. Oh, what was i doing there at five except i was working right, right? yeah so so they come in they took uh they took all our files we probably had fifteen thousand, twenty thousand pages and thousands of files on companies and they deposed all of our analysts, and they, they had come to the conclusion we were literally paying people with checks. This is how stupid they thought we were. That we were paying company management with checks written from Feshback Brothers to get inside information. So completely insane. Like, wouldn't you take a bag of cash? Uh, well, I, I wouldn't if, do it either, you... but yeah, sure, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but that was kind of part of the allegation. But but really, and this is even where you get into the to to you know naked shorting and things like that, like how stupid that whole concept mm-hmm. has been over time. Yeah, in my in my opinion, and so so what happened was. I was the last one of, of, of us. I think I was the last one. I was certainly the last one in California to be deposed, and um, and they brought up two stocks. One was uh, one was a kidney stone stock, and I don't actually remember the name of it, um, and I couldn't find it. But it was early on in the '80s, in the, or late '80s, where this machine would rattle your kidney to get get to break down the kidney stone. Sounds but it healthy. didn't really work. I you think could use it. No, no, that's no, no, Carl. That's lipotripsy. That's they they use they use yeah sound vibration now that actually works. What what he's talking about didn't work and was probably very unhealthy for you. Right. And and it was just it wasn't sound vibrations. I don't remember what the vibrations were, but, you know, it rocked your kidneys. Right. Yeah. It was a complete fraud. Yeah. Anyway, so they they asked about that stock and I made fun of them in this deposition. And then the next thing they bring up is a company that we were short called Golden Valley Microwave. ConAgra bought it and ConAgra bought it and closed it within six months of having bought it because it was a fraud and they didn't really have sales and the product wasn't very good. It was microwave popcorn, but the plastic, the analyst that worked on the stock was a really smart guy, Mike, and and he he figured out, you know, from talking to scientists or whoever, that the outer core of the, you know, the thing that the packaging over the, you know, that pops up when you when you microwave something would leak into the popcorn, so yeah. you were eating yeah. like, yeah aluminum foil or whatever that stuff was right yeah or whatever dow chemical makes uh i would say it's a 
PFAS. Right. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm digressing, but it was just it was a joke. It was a complete joke. So. So they they so we were short this stock. We were short the stock in a couple places at Merrill, at Lehman. We always borrowed stock. We kept we actually kept our stock loan ledgers, so anybody could see, you know, date, time, borrowed, who the stock loan guy was, what firm, whatever. Right? It was a complete ledger of everything we did, stock loan wise. So we were getting bought in on this stock. And on this Golden Valley microwave, and so we—it was 150,000 shares. We were getting bought in, and I found—we found stock at Oppenheimer or Lehman or somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. And we shorted it from Lehman to Merrill, call it whoever we shorted it right. to, and you know it went, and, and we were still short. They throw that, you know, but then like literally two days later, the stock gets bought out. And the SEC only sees one half of the ticket. They see the buy. Mm. You tracking with me? Yeah, because it got bought out. And they see the buy, and they don't see the sell. Uh, uh -huh. And, you know, the short from the other side. And so they thought we had gotten inside information and covered. And we had a big position in the stock. We were short four or 500,000 sure, we They thought we'd covered a third of it. Yeah. Not all of it, just a third of it, right? Like if we had inside information, you would think that we would have covered it all. But instead, we had the exact same position two days later when it was bought out. So they shoved this ticket in front of me and, and say, what about this? What about Golden Valley Microwave? You bought this two days before this, you know, the, before the, the purchase was announced. And I, I jumped out of my chair. My lawyer was there. And I started screaming at these people about how stupid they are. That's that's always helpful. And what bullshit that, <laughs> at the SEC. Yeah, yeah. And what bullshit they put us through over nothing, literally uh, nothing, a uh, fraud and a purchase, but they missed the sale. Uh, and that they had thought, you know, that was what they were going to get us on. Golden Valley Microwave, insider trading, two days before the acquisition. Uh -huh. Never heard from them again after my deposition. Well, that you, was the absolute end. But then you sued them. Yeah, but nothing came of it. That is what happens when you sue the SEC, even if they're wrong. I mean, that's just kind of the way it goes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's funny because, you know, I was starting to say earlier, you know, you talk about you didn't even get a Wells notice, right? So you there's an investigation that's publicly announced and you start losing investors left and right, as would happen in the late 80s, 90s of the Bosky Milken era. Uh, you know, now I talked to somebody, you know, last year that, did have a, a Wells notice and, you know, is under investigation. And I'm like, oh, man, but, you know, geez, what did that do to your investors? Your fund? Uh, he, he had an inflow of investors. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Right. Well, I mean, like, I mean, I, I, I guess they think that, you know, all of this at worst is nobody admits fault and you pay a fine. I mean, which, you know, my my last guest, uh, Jordan um, Thomas, Thomas would say, and he worked for the SEC, and I agree with him that, like, you know what? You just need to walk uphill and fight those battles at the SEC uh, anymore and, and maybe stop with all of the, hey, we'll just all go our separate ways for the bag of money you were talking about, Kurt. Really, that's what it kind of comes down to. Um, and, yeah, I bet that I bet that really killed you with investors. 
It did. It was really the thing that killed us. Oh. I mean, it was it was just brutal. And um, anyway, but that that's kind of how how things wrapped up. And and uh, you know, we, I like the I, I like the twenty thousand to thirty thousand documents they took out of your office. I would love to see somebody do an exercise, and if it was possible, and see how many investigations the SEC got against companies going through all of your documents, because that's pre whistleblower program, right? They've got all this rich treasure trove of documents about some of these are speeding tickets, SEC violations, but that's how they make money. So if you read all of what you had and they went after these companies for some speeding tickets and maybe some big violations, I bet they made some real money off that. Right. Oh, they may have. I don't I don't know. We pretty much we've given them so many names and could never understand why they were treating us like an, you know, an enemy. I mean, we weren't friends. Right. But we'd given them. I mean, you know, you you saw a good portion, you know, some portion of a list of names that have been turned over to them and the DOJ. And, you know, we wasn't like we were, you know, going after whatever i mean you know no nobody said wells fargo was a fraud all they said was all we said was you know they've got terrible real estate and their loans are bad and we we had a history in snls and different things but but the the great capping one of the great caps on the story that you know sort of a stupid victory was the guy that was in charge of it was guy that started it all who was making calls to people and you know called herb greenberg and uh, was a guy named gladwin goins and gladwin goins was eventually that couldn't have been easy uh, implicated in his name it couldn't have been easy but go ahead yeah that was his name gladwin with a y goins g-o-i-n-s anyway the hedge fund he worked for was a ponzi scheme Ah, 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 there you go. No. Gladwin Goins, you got it. Yep. And by the way, if you went to my high school, Gladwin, you'd have gotten your ass beat <laughs> just on the Goins thing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the, the the regulators look. The SEC gets it right most of the time. And no, you're right. They don't have friends like anybody on the other side of the table, long, short, or otherwise. Whether you're presenting evidence or, in your case, being suspected of something, it's it's all really about about making a case right so people have said to me when you go to the sec with this lock solid fraud out of china and you've got all this film and this whatever that's a great day for the sec and you know the answer really is it's a good day a great day is when i've done that and i've made a mistake too because they get two cases for one and that's their job but every once in a while yeah you can run into a hostile regulator you know, whether it's there or the DOJ or anywhere else that's got this beef. I'm glad that I'm I'm glad that Goins got his comeuppance. But at the end of the day, the sad truth is it it absolutely ruined your business. That was a thriving business, I think, doing a public service. Yeah. Well, we, we that was our whole job. And, you know, we I mean, look, by 91, a lot of, you know, uh, uh, what's his name was gone. Uh, Belfort was gone and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, DH Blair was gone and a bunch of these small brokerage firms were gone, but a lot of them, you know, lived on and, you know, there's still the, you know, same sloppy stuff they kind of bring. It's not always dead frauds like, you know, what Belfort did, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, at Stratton Oakmont, but, it, you know, it was, 
You know, there's still tons of stuff you can do oh, and yeah. lots of things you can look at. And Yeah. And that's what we're doing. And uh, that's and when I say we're doing, I mean you're doing it too. So, I mean, I guess, you know, heading towards getting to the end of a conversation, how long do you do you have it for? I mean, like you 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 just keep going. Out of all the the players that were involved in the early 80s, here you are still doing short, short side research. What's the plan for you over the next 1, 5, 10, 15 years? Well, let's, let's hope I can stay alive. <laughs> that's step one, stay that's alive. Kind of, there's, there's <laughs> first, goal, first goal is to kind of stay alive. But, you know, I'm, like, excited to work. I'm excited to dig in these, into these companies. I, I've got a, a – you know, working with a guy on my on this bindle paper thing, who's and he he's he's a great guy, and I, you know, I think I can keep going for ten or fifteen years and 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 keep doing this, and you know, hopefully I can bring in one or two people and train them and you know help them learn sort of this art of short selling and and find some good stuff. But but I I love doing this, and I've you know. I'm really lucky from that standpoint, right? No college, you know, no real high school and, you know, and, but it's just fun. I mean, I still find, you know, frustrating, of course, and all the other adjectives you want to put with it, but isn't it fun to just dig stuff up? Isn't that just like a, the greatest job that you could ever want? You know, like, I mean, people think it's, it's, it's a very corny thing and, uh, especially other short sellers would say, like anybody says they're not in it for the money, they're lying. Well, like, look, I mean, we're all doing our jobs for money. What I like most about our job and, and mine, yes, digging, hunting, pecking, and, and getting to the end of a thesis and being correct. But at the end of the day, all I have to do is tell the truth for a living. Like, where can you work where your job is basically to tell the truth for a living. That's what you do. You don't, you don't have to couch it. You can just say, this is my truth. You don't like it. Go screw yourself. Uh, I mean, I worked for a publicly listed company for many years, and they're a great company, great people, very honorable, and I enjoyed that job. But it wasn't just telling the truth all day, right? I mean, you're just, you know, you're navigating the corporate structure and, you know, there's the there's the pecking order and there's this or there's that. But, you know, for us, that's what I like the most. Yeah. So, I mean, it's 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 fun. You try and find out what and the money's great, too. <laughs> it's still fun. I mean, I still have a lot of fun. I like it. And, you know, do I get frustrated or whatever? But that's not even the point. The point is not many people get to do stuff that they really like for a long time. And I've done it for a long time and still really like it so that's good hey yeah you're over you're, you're hitting 40 years yeah yeah i'm gonna be i'm gonna be 69 in three months oh congratulations congratulations well look Kurt, <laughs> so, I've, I've talked to you i don't know maybe a handful of times over the past um 10 years not enough and i've always come away from that conversation man man this guy is really interesting and I know I haven't even scratched the surface of some of the frauds that you've investigated and some of the techniques that you've used, some of the great stories that you have. And, you know, I'd like to have you back at some point 
maybe maybe on a shorter form where we can just talk two or three old frauds that are very much like a fraud that's captured today. Like when you see one out there, Kurt, that says, you know what? This is a repeat of this company in 1986, and this is why it's a repeat. I think that would be an interesting story of how the fraud in in our market just continues to repeat itself. We'd love to. I think that'd be a fun a fun conversation, Dan. Really fun. Well, that's great. No, because I I think it really does happen. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do too. I do too. So uh, do you have anything you want to add? Do you want to tell us about anything? you want to talk any more about Bindle? Anything else you want to talk about? Well, you know, Bindle is just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's deep-seated research. It's uh, a very exciting new, new product. It's a subscription, and um, I'm hoping people like the research, and it, it's deep-seated research, and Bigger companies, um, very excited and hope some, you know, some funds call and and we can I can have a few subscribers. I'm not looking to have a hundred or fifty, but you know, if I could have ten, fifteen, or twenty, that'd be great. It, uh, yeah. The research keeps me young and you uh, well, sort of young. I'm pretty old, but you know, whatever. So that that that's really it. So how do people follow you? How do people find you? How do clients get a hold of you to buy your research? Um, well, I've, I've got my Twitter account. I've got LinkedIn. They can contact me through either one. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? Kurt Feshback. It's just, just my name. I'm not uh, hidden Okay, or so, so you are at Kurt Feshback? Got my picture. Okay, well, uh, wonderful, yep. wonderful. You're at Kurt Feshback. You've yep. got, you're on LinkedIn. That's how people can get a hold of you. Come back and hear us for our next show. I think Kurt was fantastic. and Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Carl thinks he was amazing. When's the last time Carl has said that? There you go. <laughs> Thanks for probably your last guest. <laughs> uh, not on the show, actually, but he did think Jordan was pretty great. Uh, so thanks for joining yeah. us, uh, and I uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. I wish you the best, and be well, Kurt. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, leave us a comment, give us a retweet, follow us on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. 